Good morning. Today is a, a day that I know growing up we always thought of as sort of a preparation of our hearts for Resurrection Sunday or Easter. And it, Palm Sunday is a day we celebrate the Lord's presenting himself as Messiah to the nation of Israel, but also to each and every one of our hearts. And so as we go through what will be the last study in the book of Acts for us, as we've been in this series for a little over a year, uh, I want us to make sure that we maintain a heart of preparedness. For as the Jews were waiting and awaiting their Messiah to come, we are awaiting his return. Amen? But here's the thing, and this is so vitally important. What do we do until he comes? We need to answer that question in our hearts because here's the thing. If we're living in a state of preparedness, that's good. But if we're living in a state of lethargy, that is, not real motivated, and just sort of sitting around waiting for something to happen, that's not so good. When we look at the word waiting in the Bible, the word waiting is like the word for a waiter. So if, if you went to a restaurant and your waiter was sitting down looking at you, doing absolutely nothing, just sort of waiting, you'd be like, well, that's not a very good server. And therein lies the key. When we think of a waiter in a restaurant, we think of a server, not someone just waiting. However, if you go to the dentist's office or the doctor's office, and you get there, when you're supposed to get there, almost inevitably, you're going to wait. And that's not so much fun, is it? You sit in the waiting room, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait. Now listen, listen. That is not the kind of waiting we want to be doing when we say we're waiting upon the Lord. Serving is the word that I want us to focus in on today. Because as we get to the end of the book of Acts, we realize a very important truth. And as we pray, I want us to remember these words. God has a work for you to do. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've called us to this time. We actually thank you that you've chosen to place us in our culture and in our nation's history at such a dark time. Lord, we recognize that times were difficult throughout the centuries, and especially in the first century, and it was during those times that you did some of the most powerful work through the power of your Spirit in the hearts of people. So rather than lamenting that we're not living in the 1950s or the 1980s, may we just have a heart that says, thank you, Lord, for calling me to these dark times, that I might be effective and powerful by your Spirit in reaching others with the gospel. Lord, we know that you have a work for us to do. We submit to that work, and we ask you to reveal it to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to start by looking in chapter 28, the last chapter of the book of Acts. We've just finished last week looking at the shipwreck that brought Paul and his companions to the island of Malta. They were shipwrecked. They were used mightily on the island. And we'll see that they've been there for a couple of months. And now they're ready to make their way from Malta to Rome, which was the intended destination of Paul and his traveling companions when they set out on the journey months earlier. So let's look at verses 11 through the first half of verse 14. We read there that after three months, for they spent the winter on Malta, after three months we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island, and it was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days, and from there we set sail and arrived at Regium. 
The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Putioli. There, we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. You know, one of the things I've grown to appreciate as I've traveled to conferences and done ministry and overseas and missions is that one of the best, certainly one of the most exciting elements of traveling to do ministry is connecting with others, connecting with other brothers and sisters in the faith. My very first missions trip was in 1987 to Anchorage, Alaska. It was also the first time I ever got on a plane. Yeah, so it would have been a little bit better to maybe hop down to Baltimore or something, but no. And we went there in February, not the choice month to go to Anchorage, Alaska. But I will tell you that though I don't like the cold, the, the, the hearts of the people were so warm, and it literally changed my life. It was within the first year of my coming to Christ, and it impacted me in a way that I can't even begin to express to you. But what I can tell you is that it was very important for us to get in the month of February to a place where there's very little sunshine and a lot of depression. People get depressed. Even Christians get depressed when they don't see the sun. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. We were so well received that I felt like I went up there to be blessed. And you'll experience that if you do missions. Whether you go to a missions camp, like we talked about earlier in the service, or, or you go on a missions trip, whether it's domestic or overseas, it doesn't matter. If you get involved in ministry or missions, and you make yourself available to do God's work, here's the real thing I really want to implant upon your brain today. I know you're doing it for others, but I guarantee you will be abundantly blessed. And you'll look back and say, I did that for others, but I received more than I gave. Can I hear an amen from those who know what I'm talking about? So I know that's not supposed to motivate you to do these things, but a lot of times we think, well, the cost is too high. It's going to be too difficult. Or, you know, I don't want to do this thing. I can't take the time off. I'm going to lose money. And we think, I'm going to give and I'm going to make sacrifices. And I'm just going to tell you, no, you're not. Not really. Because in the end, your end will be better than your beginning. I've seen it. I've experienced it time and time again. And many of our missionaries, short-term and long-term missionaries here in this church, know the truth. You can never outgive God. So Paul, he's been through a harrowing adventure. As I said, they spent three months on this island because their ship was destroyed and they had nothing. And they were completely dependent upon these wonderful people on the island of Malta. And God did a work there. But now the soldiers, the sailors, the prisoners, and the passengers that had spent the winter in Malta are waiting to sail to Rome. That's where they were supposed to go. And they have some explaining to do because they've lost their cargo. They've lost their ship. Uh, it, it was a disaster. And now they've got to figure out, what are we going to do now? So, you know, n- not a whole lot of fun. But they need to get out of this island where they've been and get on with their lives. And so this ship... Uh, that Julius, who's the centurion that's ex- escorting Paul and the other prisoners to Rome, Julius booked a, a passage uh, for their small group at this point, it's a smaller group, on a ship sailing across the Mediterranean Sea to Italy. And they're first going to go to Sicily. Wise choice. So, as they prepare this trip, they find a ship, a ship that had sailed to Malta, from Alexandria in Egypt before hurricane season, wisely before hurricane season. They were already there. 
And Alexandrian ships, we've talked about this before, they were very large vessels that carried grain from the breadbasket of Egypt. And so that's why they were there. They're on their way to Rome to feed the world. Now, this was very likely a large ship carrying cargo, grain, and many passengers. And so they would have had some room. And this small group who were on their way to Rome would have made their way onto the ship. Julius took care of all the arrangements. And I find this interesting. We're told here, and Luke is writing this. He's a very detailed writer. He gives us details that we might think are insignificant. But this particular ship was decorated with the pagan deities or images of Castor and Pollux. Now, those of you who've been through mentoring know I am a fan of mythology. I really enjoy reading. I have, since I was a child, very much read uh, a lot of those things. Not because I believe the stories, but because they're fascinating, interesting things to read. Even took a class, uh, one-term class, when I was in high school on mythology. Love it. And when I saw this, I was struck by the fact that most people don't know who Castor and Pollux were, or allegedly were, or legendary figures. They were the twin sons of Jupiter and Leda. They were called the Dioscuri, and they were the two heroes, or two heroes, of Greek and Roman mythology. So people knew who they were. But there's a reason why these images were on this ship. In fact, the figures were probably painted or even carved or sculpted onto the prow of the ship, and I'm sure you've seen this before. They were regarded as the guardians and protectors of sailors. So the idea of putting these images on the ship was to say, kind of like a superstitious good luck charm, we're relying on the gods to get us safely to shore. Now, of course, we don't do that. And and someone there might have said, well, look, this ship that relies on the pagan gods got safely to shore, but your ship got destroyed on the way to Malta. And sometimes life doesn't make sense. Now, you know, it's just it's the way it is. But there was a purpose. God had a work for them to do. And the ship crashing and the, the cargo being lost and them spending three months on Malta was God's will. It was God's will for this to happen. By the way, not that we focus in on the horoscope, but the Maseroth or, or the constellations in the skies predate all of the occultic things. And some believe that they were actually placed in the sky by the Lord himself to preach the gospel message. And it's a fascinating study, not for today, fascinating study when you think about Virgo, who's the virgin, Leo, who's the lion. You start to see these symbols, you realize, well, those things sound familiar to me. And anyway, a much larger study. But this is important to us because these two Greek and Roman heroes, the Dioscuri, Uh, Castor and Pollux, they appeared in the heavens as the constellation Gemini, which you've, of course, heard of. We use for the twins. So that was what was on the ship. And I love that Luke gives us that just that little bit of history or detail. Uh, This was the world they lived in, a world of gods and deities and things that we may not believe in. But this was such a part of the fabric of their culture. And it would be uh, a shame not to at least mention it. Okay, so they sailed across the open sea to Syracuse, or Syracuse, uh, which is uh, a city even today in Sicily. Uh, they went then to Regium and then to Puteoli. But Syracuse was a city at that time on the southeast coast of Sicily. It was also the largest and most important on the island. And I'm sure you've heard of it. Uh, Regium, which is mentioned, was a town in the south of Italy on the Strait of Messina. That would be from Sicily now to mainland Italy. And then, of course, Puteoli, which is mentioned, was a city on the coast of Campania. 
which is another nice area of Italy, north of the Bay of Naples, about 170 miles from Rome. So that just basically tells us that they made their way from Malta to Sicily to Italy. And, and that's where we find ourselves in our account. But this area of Puzzioli was important because it was the great emporium for the Alexandrian grain ships. It was the destination of not only the ship they were on, but it had been the intended destination for the ship that they had lost when they boarded that first Alexandrian ship. So I'm, I'm sure some of the, the sailors and the owners needed to make their way to Puteoli because there they might be able to get another ship or get onto another ship. And so everyone's on their way to different things. And this group that had been together for quite a while now is now beginning to splinter off. But God is still working in and through the life of Paul. And you're going to find that a work of God is always centered on the hearts of others. Can I hear an amen? The work of God is always centered on the hearts of others. It's not about large publicity events. It's not about concerts and entertainment venues. It's not about getting written up in the paper or being big online. It's about the individual heart. Right, Pastor Kurt? What what do you say in ISC? You're changing the lives of campers one heart at a time or one camper at a time. You're changing hearts. You're changing lives. This is what ministry actually is whether it's a sports camp ministry or a missions ministry or feeding the homeless or ministering to the needs of those who have needs, we're always thinking about how can I reach this one heart? And if you're thinking about a thousand hearts or a hundred hearts, let me give you an analogy. Let's say, God forbid, you had to have heart surgery and you were going to a cardiologist or a thoracic surgeon. Would you want your surgeon to be focused in on your heart? Or would you rather he be focused in on the 100 hearts that he has to operate on in that given month? I think you want someone who's going to look at your heart and say, this is what I need to do to fix this heart. So I want you to think very hard about this. When you're ministering, are you looking at the big picture or are you looking at the individual? Because that's how we approach things in ministry. If you're speaking with someone and you need to get to go do ministry and you're ministering to that person and you cut them off, you've missed it. You've missed the point. It's about the individual heart. That comes out in our account today because as Paul begins to spend more and more time with these people, you can clearly see ministry is to the heart, to the individual. Now, their small group now spent one last week together in Puteoli before traveling to Rome. And I find that so interesting. Julius is a centurion. They are way behind schedule. If they were focused in on getting there on time, they've already missed that boat, literally. But it's not about that anymore. There's something that's changed, and Julius the centurion and the other Roman soldiers who've been accompanying Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus for months spend one last week with Paul and his friends. They could have said, no, 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 no. We're way behind schedule. My goodness, we lost the ship, all these things. I'm so late to report into Rome. I need to get there. I I don't have time for this fellowship stuff. I don't have time for any of this. I need to just get to Rome. No. They spent one last week. What does that tell you about the relationship that Paul and his traveling companions must have had with Julius and the Roman soldiers by this point? You think some of them might have gotten saved already? You think some of them might have gotten into a a very 
deep and uh, uh, wonderful relationship with these Christian men? I believe there's a reason why we're told they spent that last week together. After this, they might not see each other again. And God has used these circumstances to bring these men together because God had a work for Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus to do in the lives of not only the people on Malta, but their traveling companions, that is, the centurion and the soldiers and the other prisoners who were on their way to Rome. We don't know how many there were, but enough that it was a small group. But we're told here that they spent this one last week together before traveling to Rome when everyone would split up and go their own way. So they hit the pause button. Have you ever done that in life? You're at a sweet moment. You like to do that with the little kids, like hit the pause button for a few decades, right? You don't want them to grow up. You, you want to hit the... You can stay three for the next 30 years. I'm okay with that, you know? They're so, they're so sweet, and there's those sweet moments in life where you're just like, I don't want it to end, so I'm just going to hit the pause button. Now, we can't do that with the little ones, but we can do that at times in ministry. We can hit the pause button and say, this is a very sweet time, and I don't want to rush on to the next thing. I just want to enjoy what God is doing in and through my life. Now, I'm going to tell you, my, my perspective has changed over the last 18 months. You know I study martial arts now, and my, my whole approach to life has changed because I'm living in the present. I'm living in the moment. And as I've done that, as it's transformed my looking at life and how I approach my goals, I've come to this conclusion. I need to hit the pause button a little more. Because more and more of those people who are dear to me, that I love, have gone on to be with the Lord. I've reached a point in my life now where there's maybe more people I know on the other side waiting to receive me in glory. So, you know what? Living in the present means I'm not worried about next week. I'm not even thinking so much about that. I'm here. I'm I'm in a place now with all of you. We're enjoying sweet fellowship. We're in the word. We're in worship. Can, Can this be enough right now? Say amen. Can this be enough? Why are we always, and I'm guilty of this, why are we always looking ahead? Like, uh, the future is so much better than the present. You can only think about what the future is. You can actually live in the present. So I want to encourage you to hit the pause button a little. Maybe this next week. Maybe on Resurrection Sunday. Maybe as we go into the summer months. Don't be looking, oh, I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't wait. You know what? Just take a moment, take a deep breath, and enjoy the moment you're in. This is what I believe Paul and his companions did for a week. Just enjoyed those last moments that they had with these men, who I'm sure had grown close to them over these many months. They had all been through some very difficult trials together and had witnessed many miracles. And they now enjoyed the gracious hospitality of disciples within the local church. And I'm sure that just sealed the deal with some of these Romans. They show up in a town they've never been in and... <clears throat> excuse me, the church just comes out and, and blesses them. Did you see that? They just spent that, that week together, with, and they said they, the brothers invited them to spend a week with them. So what a blessed time it must have been. And so all of these circumstances and experiences had surely impacted these men for Christ, but they weren't rushing on to the next thing either. So, Now we learn that Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus, they traveled from Puteoli in Italy to Rome. They finally make it to Rome. Paul was told by the Lord on multiple occasions, you're going to Rome. Everything looked like they were never going to make it there alive. At times it looked like Paul would be assassinated, or he would never be released from Caesarea, or 
the ship wouldn't make it there and they'd all die in the process. 14 days out at sea in the middle of a hurricane and storms. And at times it didn't look like it was going to happen. But of course God is faithful. Amen. And so we read in the latter part of verse 14, and so we came to Rome. And so we came to Rome. You might say, okay, they came to Rome. Ah, And so we came to Rome. Finally, after months of trials, challenges, difficulties, opportunities in ministry, they came to Rome. And we read that the brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. And at the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. And when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So what, a, what, what an interesting thing is happening here. And I want to focus in on the fellowship aspect of this because they've already had the fellowship amongst themselves. They've experienced the fellowship of others in Putioli. They, they've had these opportunities to, to be together, and they've experienced the fellowship of the local Christians. And now something really encouraging happens. We're told Paul is encouraged. He's encouraged by the fellowship of the disciples from Rome. See, these men and women, were told, traveled a great distance to greet Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus. Perhaps someone had written ahead to tell them that they were on their way. But in either case, Paul and his team were traveling to Rome by the Appian Way. It's a highway of sorts. At the time, it was a walkway. But it was a highway that led you right to Rome. It was the main thoroughfare. It was built by Appius Claudius, and it's why it was called the Appian Way. It ran from Rome to Brundisium on the Adriatic Sea, and today, this road still exists. It's called, or known as, the Pozzoli. Okay, it sounds like something you could eat. The, well, it's in Italy. The Pozzoli. There we go. Some of them, some of these disciples actually traveled 40 miles to meet Paul in Appius, a town along the Appian Way. Now, this forum was the marketplace or the center of Appius, and so can you imagine, they're just sitting there, like when you, you, know, you go to the airport to pick up someone you never met, usually have a little sign, Mr. Jones, you know. So they're just waiting there for these guys to get there. Some of them probably had no idea who they, you know, they were looking for, but they, they knew Paul and his traveling companions would be on their way. And the reason, this is fascinating to me, the reason they waited for him there in Appius is because from this place, there were actually two ways to travel to Rome. So there was a split in the road. They had to meet them before they took either the right path or the left path because they didn't want to miss them. So they traveled 40 miles to make sure that they would greet them on their way to Rome. I mean, that's why Paul was encouraged. Think about it. 40 miles. I mean, I won't even bring somebody to JFK. You kidding me? So, not when Newark is so close. So anyway, there were others, we're told, that traveled 30 miles to a place called the Three Taverns. And this was another town along the Appian Way. It was named for the three shops. Imagine this, uh, just three shops. There was a general store, a blacksmith, and a refreshment house, and so Three Taverns. Very creative name. Uh, The town was designed for the reception of travelers, as the name indicates. It was the first resting place for those leaving Rome and the last on the way to the city. So it was just a little place where you stopped on your way from or way to Rome. Now, the reason that those that met him there, it's a different group of people, the reason they went there is because they waited for him there. There were three roads that merged with the Appian Way. Again, the roads branched off, so they wanted to make sure that they didn't miss them. 
So you just see the care and the concern of these people in the local churches to just spend time with Paul and not miss him, to be concerned for them. They, they knew that they were on their way, but, you know, they're just looking for these guys, but they put themselves in strategic places where they couldn't miss them on their way. Okay, so that's what we're told. These were the same men and women, by the way, to whom he had written his Roman epistle like three years earlier. So imagine, they had actually received the epistle to the Romans, and now they're going to meet the one who wrote the letter. Probably, more than likely, for the first time. I remember when I met, uh, let's see, I've met a lot of authors, but I remember meeting Joel Rosenberg, and he signed a, a book for me. I happen to read a lot of his books. And, uh, you know, very, very nice man, very, very uh, down-to-earth guy, to be honest with you. I was kind of surprised with how down-to-earth he was. And he signed a book for me, and we talked a little bit, and he asked me questions about my life, which was, I thought was interesting because I had a million questions for him. But, you know, one of the things, when you meet somebody that you've read, you have a certain perception of them, right? And sometimes you're disappointed, sometimes you're pleasantly surprised. But in Paul's case, he had written the, the epistle to the Romans. Imagine meeting him, right? And so here they are. You're just sort of waiting to meet this guy and knowing he's coming to Rome. For reasons that may be suspicious to some, but he was coming there, and God had sent him through a series of circumstances, and they were excited to meet him. He had been in Roman custody for several years since he had written to them. So Paul had been sort of off the mission field for some time, like some of us probably feel, right, Pastor Joe, right now with COVID? We've been off the mission field for years now because of the circumstances in our world. Not really, because we can still minister, but it's a little different than being able to travel every six months. Now, of course, Carl and Heather, you know, you guys managed to travel anyway, which is wonderful. Your organization brought you to parts of the Middle East. Uh, so, you know, it is possible to travel, but certainly the opportunities are less than they were. Let's put it that way. But here, Paul had been in protective custody. He had really didn't have any opportunities to minister in the way that he had. He was probably unaware as, this, as to the state of the Roman church. He had probably no idea how things were going. He had written the letter and that was it. It had also been a while since he had visited an established church. And it must have blessed him greatly to see such support given how many critics he had. So we're told Paul was encouraged and you can understand why. Well, Paul, we're told in verse 16, was held under house arrest once he arrived in Rome. So he's, he's back in house arrest, and you're thinking, great. You go to Rome, and now you're still under house arrest. You're still stuck, sort of, in protective custody. I mean, what ministry can you do? Well, this is the amazing thing about how God works. You know, imagine if you went to Rome. I haven't been to Rome, but imagine if you've been to Rome. Some of you have been, even recently. And you got there, and they said, oh... Due to COVID, you can't leave your hotel room. You'd be a little disappointed. No Sistine Chapel, you know, no Colosseum, no Forum, no nothing, except the inside of the hotel room. So you think, oh, I'll watch the Travel Channel. Well, I could do that in New Jersey. (laughs) This happened, unfortunately, to a lot of people as they traveled over the last couple of years. They went to a place and were shut down, and, and, and that's kind of depressing and disappointing. But not for Paul. Because God is not limited by things like that. And, and here's what happened. He was given the freedom to live in his own rented house and receive visitors. And he was guarded by a soldier while he waited several years to make his appeal to Caesar. So it seems that the justice system or the judicial system was as clogged up as it is today back in ancient Rome. 
But it's possible that Julius, the centurion, or one of the other soldiers that had been with Paul for a while now, months, maybe he, one of these men were, were assigned to him. And if so, whoever was guarding him had incredible access to Paul. So don't think for a minute that ministry wasn't taking place every minute of every day in that house, that rented home. And that's how God works. We'll see in just a minute that God did some wonderful things while Paul was there. Okay, so let's read verses uh, 17. We'll read 17 through 22, wrapping things up. In verses 17 through 22, we read that three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. Now, this is different. He's not reaching out to the church at this point. He starts with the Jews. And when they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. Bound with this chain. Hmm. Well, they didn't have those little bracelets, you know, those tracking bracelets back in those days. So, or those phones they hand out to people who sneak over the border. That was an interesting article I read this week. Yeah, that'll work. Like people lose their phone without trying. But that's enough of that. So they put a chain on him. That, that was basically a way of saying, well, you can't leave the house. People can come in here, but you can't leave. How would you feel about that? I think some of us felt like that about a year or two ago, right? You felt like you had a chain around your neck and you were stuck in the house. It wasn't pleasant, was it? I didn't enjoy that. Did anyone here enjoy it? I don't think so. So you might be tempted to think, well, what a letdown. All the way to Rome so he can be chained to a wall maybe or just have his legs chained together or his hands and cuffs. Who knows what, but he's telling them. He was there. We're we're told there that he was in this chain. I am bound with this chain. And notice their response. They replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. Wow, that's a good day in Paul's life. But we want you to hear, but we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere, everywhere are talking against this sect that is Christianity, that is the early church, the Jewish church, the Jewish Christians called the Way or the Nazarenes, people were talking, and they were talking against it. So Paul's a little on the defense, but he takes the initiative to reach out to those who would have been his staunchest critics. And he reaches out and he begins to speak to them. He wants, listen, his heart is so for the Jews. He is a Jew. And so he starts by saying, look, before things get out of hand, like they always do, wherever I go, let me start by reaching out to my brothers, my fellow Jews, and let me clear the air in case they've heard anything that's not really true. I want to, want to set the record straight. Yeah, you have to admire Paul for wanting to do that. So he invites these leaders to his rented house in Rome within three days of his arrival. And he wanted to explain what had happened to him. He dressed them as brothers. Did you see that? Brothers. He clarified that he was innocent of attacking Jews or Judaism and told them that he had been unjustly arrested by the Jews and handed over to the Romans. Again, wanting to set the record straight, he assured them 
he had been found innocent, and he had, of any capital crimes against Rome. And he explained that he would have been released had the Jews not objected to it. And he clarified that he had no other choice. He was compelled. He had no other choice but to appeal to Caesar for justice, which is why he's in Rome. He also assured them that he had not made any charges against the Jews to the Romans. He wanted to be clear. The Romans and the Jews were... Enemies is probably a strong enough term. And they really didn't love each other, okay? So you can imagine, Paul is a Roman citizen, but he's also a Jewish rabbi. And he wants to be clear with his brothers. Hey, listen, I'm a Jew. I'm a Christian, but I'm a Jew. I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm a Jew. I'm a Roman citizen, but I'm a Jew. He, he's looking to build a rapport with people he's never met before and to avoid the criticism and the persecution that seemed to always come his way. Paul had grown a lot, I think, over the years. He, he learned to be more tactful and diplomatic. Uh, has anyone here experienced that? You know, I, I'm not so much a fan of my 27-year-old self as I am my 57-year-old self. I'm going to be honest with you. I would say stupid things. Sometimes I think about it and I think, my memory is really good and unfortunately I remember those things. I'm just praying that everyone else forgot. <laughs> and then if it's recorded, I can always delete the MP4s or MP3s. I can always go online and get rid of them. Uh, I, I'm not so much a fan of my younger self, some of the things I would say in the way that I would say them. And I have to say that while youth is a wonderful thing to have, age and wisdom is also a wonderful thing to have. Can I hear an amen, my gray-haired fellow friends here? You know, age and wisdom is something to be treasured. In fact, the Bible talks about this. It says the gray head, it's it's a sign of honor and blessing. So I'm working on it. I told uh, Zara and, uh, and, and Vince over there, I said, one of these days I'll be sitting next to you. I have a few more years. So here's the thing. Um, you're, you're seeing a man who's learned to be a little bit more tactful, diplomatic. A man who's learned to use a little bit more discretion, which we all could use. And I really appreciate that. that Paul had room to grow and God was patient with him. He's under house arrest in Rome. Why? Because he's a Jewish follower of Jesus Christ. He tells him, for the hope of Israel, that's a Messiah. He's talking about the Messiah when he says uh, that I wanted to talk to you. It's because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. Uh, You may not know what that is, but they did. It's about the hope of Israel is Jesus, the Messiah. The Messiah is the hope of Israel. So he mentions that to them. I wanted to speak with them in person as to why he was there to dispel any rumors. Here's another principle. Communication dispels rumors. Communication deals with miscommunication. If you over-communicate, then you don't have miscommunication to the same degree that you would if you don't. So this is why it's so important to communicate to people how you're feeling, what's going on, news and information in a proper way. He still hadn't given up his heart's desire to reach his own people with the truth, clearly, and he was very concerned that the Jews of Jerusalem had poisoned them against him. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe you're going in for a job interview or you're meeting somebody and and your thought is, what did those people say about me? Do, Do I have to worry? Did I get bad press? Have I been poisoned in the minds of this person? You know, sometimes I would talk to someone and speak with someone at work when I was in the corporate world, and I'd be having a conversation over lunch, and I would begin to share the gospel, and I saw like a little flicker in their eyes, and I said, somebody's gotten to them. Somebody told them I'm a born-again crazy Jesus freak, which is true. And I, and I would 
you know, I'd, I'd be like, well, I got to set the record straight. I want, the, I want these people to listen to the message I'm trying to share with them. And then you find out they, they haven't received any bad news. They just, you know, they're just interested in what you have to say. It was a good day for Paul. That's a good thing, and that's what happened. And so, none of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem had written to them. Uh, he hadn't, they hadn't received any news or information concerning his arrest. They, they weren't even familiar with him, but they were familiar with the movement. None of the Jews had traveled from Jerusalem to criticize him either. So this is an open door for ministry. Paul's got a clean slate. Who likes a clean slate? Say amen. Clean slate. Ever start a new job and you just, this time, I'm going to do things differently. You move into a new house. This time, I'm going to do things differently. And that's, I think, the great opportunity Paul had. Well, the Jews were open to meeting with Paul at a later date to discuss his views concerning Jesus. That's a good thing. And they certainly had heard about the followers of Jesus Christ in the early church. Now, within 30 years of the resurrection, they had heard about Jesus as far away as Rome. So think about that. Had the church been effective in sharing the gospel? Without social media, satellite, radio, TV, cell phones, you don't have to rely on technology to get the word out. Amen? Again, we're back to that. One heart at a time. They considered the disciples members of an often criticized Jewish sect, and they didn't really know a whole lot about it, so Paul has this wonderful opportunity. Again, clean slate. Then we read in verses 23 through 29, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying, and from morning till evening... He explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. That would be your Old Testament. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. And they disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. Here's that statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving, for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. And then, if you're in the NIV, some of the uh, margins have this verse 29, which it's put in the margin because it's not in every manuscript, but there's nothing controversial about it. It simply goes on to say in verse 29, after he said this, the Jews left arguing vigorously among themselves. That's sort of a side note or a parenthesis. But this is what we're told. Paul did what Paul always did, and it wasn't always effective. Have you experienced that? Maybe you did invite someone for next week's services on Good Friday or Resurrection Sunday, and they kind of already told you they're not coming. And you're thinking, I failed. No, they failed to respond to the gospel or to an opportunity to hear the gospel. You haven't failed. Maybe you failed if you failed to invite them, but not if they failed to respond. Please understand that. If Paul the Apostle, none of us here can shine his shoes, right? If Paul the Apostle had people say, Yeah, I believe. And others say, no, I don't believe. You can expect more of the same, unfortunately. So here's what we know. 
He spent the entire day preaching the kingdom of God to them from the Jewish scriptures. Now, some of the Jews were convinced of the truth. And we're grateful when some people are convinced of the truth. And I pray next week in our services, some people are convinced of the truth. But others rejected it and they refused to believe. And that's the truth of sharing the gospel. There are some that receive and some that reject and some that refuse. Some reject it out of hand. Some just refuse to believe. It's going to happen, and fortunately, that's the way things go. But it doesn't excuse us or release us from the responsibility to do the work that God has called us to do. What is the work that God has called us to do? It's not saving people. Jesus accomplished that work on the cross. It is finished. Amen? The work for us to do is to preach the message of salvation through Jesus Christ on the cross, who died for our sins, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. That's the work God has called us to do. And we have a wonderful opportunity, even within these times in which we live, and the culture that we find ourselves in, to do that very thing in wonderful, creative ways. Now, those that rejected the truth left him after he made this final challenge from Isaiah. Now, here's what you need to know. When, when Isaiah shared that message, the Lord had sent Isaiah to call his people, the Jews, to himself, despite their persistent rebellion. They were a very rebellious people. They had purposely denied the truths of God's word. They had remained blind and deaf to the truth, ignorant of his love. And they had refused to repent. And as a result, they couldn't be healed. God wanted to heal them. They wouldn't let him. God didn't hold back healing or blessing they held back their being blessed. Understand that. Understand, there's a big difference between God not wanting to bless them, God and, and God wanting to bless them, and them not wanting to be blessed. Well, when the Father sent Jesus to call his people to himself, despite their persistent rebellion, Jesus used the same scripture to communicate the challenge that Isaiah had shared Because you see, they, in Jesus' day, had purposely denied the truths of God's word. They had remained blind and deaf to the truth and ignorant of his love. In Jesus' day, they had refused to repent and as a result couldn't be healed by God. So now Paul, after Jesus quoted that scripture, Paul quotes it for the same reasons. He informed them, that is Paul, informed them that the Lord had now sent him to preach to the Gentiles instead of the Jews and only because the Jews refused to receive the message. Not all, just most. Now, God was offering salvation to the Gentiles, who, unlike these Jews, were willing to listen and believe. So who are your Gentiles? Who are those people in your life who are willing to believe? There are people that shut you down, I know. But not everyone. There are some groups of people out there that will listen to your presentation of the gospel message and respond, or look around. Was everyone here born a Christian? No, we were born again Christian. Can I hear an amen? There was a moment when you decided to believe. Now listen, I'm not about large churches. I I love this church just the way it is. It doesn't have to get any bigger for me to be more excited about coming here on a Sunday or a Wednesday. But you know what does excite me? Kingdom-based ministry. Where the kingdom grows and people get saved and more and more people come to know him. That's my heart. However God wants to do that and chooses to do that through us, I'm okay with that. There was a time where I might have said, God, keep our church below 300 people because I really don't want to pastor a church of any more than that. And that would be stupid and selfish, but I'm not always the smartest person in the room. 
But I've come to terms with, in this culture today, we need to be the kind of people that accept what God wants to do because God has a work for us to do. Amen? And I believe that work in this church, oh, it's, you know, it's focused on the children, absolutely, the next generation, but there are many people out there that, that need to be either in this congregation or in a congregation like this congregation, where they're hearing the gospel, they're being taught the word of God, they're being loved in fellowship and sent out to preach the gospel. I know that happens here. I know it doesn't happen everywhere. But wherever it happens, I pray today that those churches would be filled with listening ears and open hearts. Amen? Okay. Well, God was offering salvation to the Gentiles. Every one of us has a choice to make, choice to believe in Jesus. God does not make this choice for us, but he desires for us to choose him. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, this realization that Paul is sharing with them from Isaiah and that Jesus had shared caused these Jews to argue vigorously amongst themselves as they left him. That means that some believed and some didn't. And there was a discussion as they left Paul. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. It would be better if everyone just believed, but that wasn't going to happen. So some are believing God is working among the Gentiles and some of the Jews. And then we read in the last two verses... And we come to the end of our series of studies in verses 30 to 31. This is the closing paragraph. It says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him boldly and without hindrance. He preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know what is awesome about this? Paul was held under house arrest for the two years that he was in Rome. But he was given the freedom to live in his own rented house and receive visitors, as we've said. He had many people come to visit him while he was living there. Many people. You know, Luke and Aristarchus had traveled to Rome with Paul. We know Luke had remained with him, so Paul wasn't alone. We're not sure about Aristarchus, but Timothy, we're told, was often in Rome. He was often there. Tychicus, Epaphroditus, John Mark were also with him as Paul indicates in his letters that he wrote from that prison cell or that rented house. He wrote epistles while he was there. Maybe you've heard of them. The epistle to the Ephesians, the epistle to the Colossians, the epistle to the Philippians, and the epistle to Philemon were all written from that rented house. Was Paul busy? (laughs) I'll say. Those letters, those books of the Bible, wow, what would we do with that? What would we do without the letter to the Ephesians, or, or, or any of these books, or Philippians. What would we do? Vince, that, you're, you're, uh, Vince's life ver- verse comes from Philippians 4, right? You love that verse. What would we do without that epistle? So that's, that's something that we need to think about. God was working. God had a work for Paul to do, and part of it was this. You got to get Paul to stand still for five minutes to write those letters, right? So Paul was given the opportunity to speak boldly without opposition from his critics, which is something he never experienced before. He preached the kingdom of God, taught them about the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what we do at Calvary Chapel and is what each and every one of us need to continue to do as long as we're here, that is, on this earth. The Lord had sent him into the world with the gospel for many years. Now the Lord sent the world to him as he lived in his own rented house. God is not limited 
in any way, shape, or form from using us despite our circumstances. So maybe you can't get around the way you used to. Maybe you got a bad knee or a bad hip. Maybe you're not able to travel. You have, a long, you have young children. You have uh, less opportunity than you used to. Does that limit God? Or does God have a work for you to do? Say amen. Convince me. Now, Paul exemplifies the true ministry and calling of every disciple of Christ, past, present, and future. The Lord may send the world to you or you into the world to share the gospel, but share the gospel you will. May we, like Paul, preach the gospel and teach the world about our Lord Jesus Christ from God's word. That is the work that God has called us to do. And may we do so boldly and without opposition, just like Paul, all the days of our lives. By the way, as I asked the worship team to come up or Pastor Russ to close the service, Paul was probably released from house arrest after he made his appeal to Caesar Nero in 63 AD. We're not entirely sure, but it's believed that He then returned to visit many of the churches in Asia Minor, Macedonia, and Achaia. And he also wrote his epistles to Timothy and Titus during this time. In fact, we know that he wrote his last epistle to Timothy about the year 66-67 AD during his second imprisonment in Rome. This second imprisonment was not as enjoyable, let's put it that way, as his first imprisonment. That was more of a, he was on appeal, he was in protective custody. Later on, he was imprisoned in earnest and no doubt suffered a great deal. He was ultimately beheaded by the Romans as a martyr for his faith in Jesus Christ by Caesar Nero within a few years. But Paul lived his life for God every moment that God gave him. May we do likewise. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this series of studies. We thank you for your word. As we prepare now for next week in the services, we have three services next week, Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday, we pray that we would be empowered by your Holy Spirit to share the truth and that others would be convicted by the Holy Spirit to receive it, to believe it, and to become children of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand once again?